Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, so a little uh, PSA for you all today. Depending upon where you live in the country, apple picking season may be starting as soon as this week. Now, I always forget that apple picking season actually really isn't an October activity. I always think of it as one, but really for most of the country, apple picking takes place in like early and mid-September. I absolutely love apple picking and it's the perfect COVID activity. So don't forget about it. Get out and pick some apples. Hey, Virginia. Yeah. What is apple picking? What do you, what do you, what do you mean, Lauren? What do you, you like, pick is that apples? A, is, is that a thing people do? Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, you're from Florida. Yeah. Okay. I forgot. Like, <laughs> you Floridians. Do like you pick strawberries down there, but it's not like a, it's not like an act, afternoon activity. Yeah, because apples do not grow on palm trees. Um, yeah. So I grew up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and apple picking was like this fall tradition. And even when I lived in Georgia, people a lot of people did it. But yeah, you get your whole family, a whole group of friends together. You drive to some mountain farm somewhere and you pay way too much money for a very small bag of apples, but it's really all about the experience. And apples really are delicious, but you definitely usually wind up paying way more than you would spend in the grocery store. But it's because it's like a whole event and activity and there's usually like cider involved or hot chocolate, even though it's actually quite warm outside still. Anyway, it's a great fall activity. Everyone should do it. Okay, I'm into it. All right, Lauren, we'll we'll go apple picking at some point one day. <laughs> okay, but what do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, Monica Klein, a former Planned Parenthood volunteer and a comprehensive sex educator, joins the show to tell her story of walking away from Planned Parenthood and why sex education in schools is actually pressuring young people to have sex. Plus, our friend and colleague, Rachel Del Judas, joins us to talk about writing on Air Force Two with the vice president last week and the brand new Daily Signal documentary she helped to produce about a French teacher who was fired for not using a transgender student's preferred pronoun. Then we give you a quick update on the battle over women's sports. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are so excited to chat with Monica Klein today, the founder of It Takes a Family, but we do want to let you know that portions of this conversation may be inappropriate for children. So you might want to skip ahead and listen back to this interview at a later time when you don't have little ones around. We are increasingly hearing about progressive and even explicit sex education being taught in schools. Children as young as five or six years old are being introduced to the concept of sexual identity. Middle schoolers are encouraged to have sex early and often. And much of this education happens without the parents' knowledge or consent. 
Monica Klein worked as a comprehensive sex educator and volunteered for Planned Parenthood for 10 years before walking away to become a sexual risk avoidance specialist and start an organization called It Takes a Family. Monica has stood on both sides of the sex education debate, and she joins us today to give us an inside look into how sex education affects young people. Monica, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. You spent 10 years working with Planned Parenthood. How did you become a comprehensive sex educator and come to work so closely with Planned Parenthood? Well, that's an interesting story. Um, I was a student at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, it was in the, the 90s. HIV was a um, something that everyone was really concerned about. And I was actually volunteering uh, or in a social work class, and I needed to volunteer for an organization. And I had already worked in children's shelters and done several several things in the community, and I really wanted to do something different. And um, I was drawn to HIV because I had an uncle who identified with same-sex attraction. And I'm from a really small town in South Texas. And uh, it wasn't, uh, his lifestyle was not something that was accepted. And um, in our area and in the family, we loved him dearly. Um, but he decided to move to uh, California where um, he could felt like he could live his lifestyle as, in, as a gay man. Um, and so I only knew him via the phone. Um, and so he would call and we would talk to him. And it was in the 80s um, that he came back to Texas to visit with us. Uh, and I understood it was because he was dying. And it turns out that he had become infected with HIV. And at that time in the 80s, uh, it was pretty much a death sentence. Really, doctors were even prescribing medications to these um, men to take their own lives because there really wasn't another option. And that's what um, later on when I became an HIV prevention outreach worker at a gay organization is when I discovered that that's really what my uncle had done was he had taken his own life after visiting with us. And, um, and that was really the reason why I decided to volunteer at a gay organization. They were doing HIV outreach. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a way for me to um, get to know a little more about my uncle's culture and what he, his life was like. And, um, and I did, I learned quite a bit. I was at that organization for five years. Um, it was called Algo Informacida. It was the Austin Latino, Latina, lesbian and gay organization. And that's where I learned that my um, uncle, who seemed to have a very uh, timely death on the beach at sunset, um, I realized had taken his own life because that was really his only choice at that time. And um, so really, I was driven by compassion. I really wanted to help the community. I wanted to be there for people who were marginalized, who felt alone. And that was the reason why I decided to do that. And um, I was quickly hired. Uh, after volunteering for just a few months, I graduated and they quickly hired me. And within a few months, they said, you need to go across the street to Planned Parenthood. They literally were just across the street. And, um, and they, you know, they said, you know, uh, the director of sex education there would like to mentor you so that you understand how to share this message with school age children. So I uh, went over to the clinic and she sat me down for a private um, mentoring. Sorry about that. 
And she uh, began to explain to me all of the horrible stories of girls as young as 10 coming into the clinic. And um, really, you know, these were stories of young girls with STDs or getting abortions. And in some even more severe cases, um, having objects removed from their bodies. Yeah. And they were just little girls. And so my first reaction was to say, okay, you've convinced me this is really terrible. Teach me how to teach these girls not to have sex. And she said, no, dear. And she patted me on the knee. She said, we're not here to teach them not to have sex. We're here to teach them how to do it safer. Um, it would be judging for us to go against their choice. And so we're just going to teach them how to do it safer by using condoms, lubrication, how to get tested and treated for STDs and have abortions. And I, you know, I, I kind of was like, no, these are just little curls. But she assured me as the expert who was receiving government funding that this was the best way and the most compassionate way to meet these young girls where they were at. Um, and so I believed her, I believe that this was it. And so one of the first lessons she taught me, she said, okay, when you walk into a class full of children, you need to know that they've done anything and everything when it comes to sex. And if they haven't, they will. And it's your job to teach them everything about every sexual activity and how to reduce their risk through the use of condoms and lubrication. So it really did mean that regardless of whether those children were sexually active or not, the job of the comprehensive sex educator is to introduce them to every possible sexual activity, whether it's multiple partners at once, whether it's the use of um, sex toys, whatever it may be, the comprehensive sex educator needs to have an answer on how to help these people reduce their risk. And it doesn't matter how old they are. So can you go a little further into that and explain, you know, are, are you spending an hour giving this presentation? Is this over multiple weeks? And what is the reaction you're getting from students as you're standing in front of a classroom? And I mean, is that boys and girls in the classroom? Yeah. How old are these kids? Right. So this was in 1996. <laughs> so um, back then, we were not allowed to have uh, curricula like you see today, where you know, in California or in Texas, where it's several weeks of teaching. Uh, this was a one hour class. We we're snuck into the schools or we would be at a juvenile detention center or a halfway house or even on the street, just meeting them in their neighborhood. And the first thing that she taught me to do is that we, you know, even though she said that these children she was trying to convince me that they were all sexually active. She said, you know, they're just, they're not going to tell you what they're doing. Um, and so it's your job to break down their inhibitions basically. And so boys and girls, one of the first, um, I guess what we call an icebreaker is to have them list uh, or shout out the names of all the sexual parts, uh, whether it's slang or accurate terms. And, you know, the kids start to say different crass words for body parts, and the instructor is then writing them on a whiteboard. And um, by the end of that activity, even the shy kids are starting to shout out different words for different body parts. And they're giggling and they're laughing because they realize that the authority or the adult in the room is encouraging them to do it. And so that's the first step in reducing their inhibitions and normalizing talking about sexual things uh, with each other and with another adult. 
And, um, and so what's left at the end of that activity is just a collage of dehumanizing terms for their bodies. And so that's really not only the first time that they begin to be, to break down their inhibitions, but it's the first step to looking at themselves and each other as material things, or they begin to dehumanize one another. Wow. So what point did, were you like, I need to get out of this? When, you know, it took, unfortunately, it took a while. <laughs> um, I wasn't comfortable, you know, at first with talking to children. A, a lot of my work with were adults and IV drug users and prostitutes. And uh, my job was literally to walk in high risk neighborhoods and areas. Um, and so when I was with kids, it was a little different for me, but I trusted them and I did provide these lessons, including condom negotiation skills and role playing and how to eroticize the use of condoms to uh, basically persuade a sexual partner to use those condoms. But it was really the turning point for me was um, I was asked to I was actually invited by Planned Parenthood. They, um, we collaborated with each other. So I was never employed by Planned Parenthood. Uh, they trained me, they mentored me. And in the world of prevention, uh, comprehensive sex education, HIV organizations, STD clinics and outreach workers and Planned Parenthood all work together. And so we're at fairs together. We're sharing workshops with one another. If, if plant, like in, in this situation, Planned Parenthood was asked to go speak at an alternative school to 13 and 14 year old boys and girls. They didn't have time. So they called me and asked me to do it. So I went to this alternative school, which is really for kids who are high risk. They've been kicked out of every school. And this is kind of like the last school that they can go to. So these are high risk children. They're about 13, 14 years of age. And I had both boys and girls in the classroom. And, you know, I started off the prevention message like usual. I wrote on the whiteboard, anal sex, oral sex, vaginal sex. And then on the other side, I wrote uh, blood, vaginal secretions and semen. And that's how we started the conversation is to start talking about prevention. And so um, uh, as I'm talking, a 13 year old girl in the back raises her hand and she says, um, and I'm going to clean up her language just a little bit for you, but it's probably still going to shock you. And she was not being disrespectful. This was an honest question that she had, but she said, when I give boys oral sex, I gag, can you teach me how to do it better? And that actually did surprise me. <laughs> so I've heard a lot and I heard a lot from adults, but to see a little girl asking that question was still shocking for me. So, um, I, I just restated the question to her to make sure I understood her correctly. And I said, okay, so when you're involved in this activity, you gag, you don't like it. Um, you know, you don't, you don't like that feeling. And she said, that's right. I don't like it. But if you teach me how to do it better, maybe I will like it. And I said, well, have you ever considered just not doing the activity that you don't like? And at that point, she and the rest of the kids turned in their chairs and just looked at me and Planned Parenthood had taught me that if I ever talked about abstinence, um, that they would feel judged, that the children would feel judged by that. But these kids didn't look judged. They just kind of looked really innocent, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, guys, do you realize you don't have to have sex? And I pointed to the board. I said, you don't have to have oral sex or vaginal sex or anal sex. And if you don't, you never have to come in contact with someone else's bodily fluids. And I pointed on the board again at the bodily fluids that transmit STDs and HIV. And they just were quiet. And the little girl, the same little girl raised her hand and she said, ma'am, no one has ever told us that. 
And they started to talk about abstinence. Now, they didn't use the word abstinence, but they started to talk about ways that they could be with each other without touching one another, without having sex. And they came up with great ideas like, you know, the majority of them lived in government housing. And at the time, most of them worked or lived at Booker T. Washington. And they said, hey, the community center has free movies and free snacks. We could always just watch movies and eat some snacks. Oh, one of the boys said, we can go to the bay, uh, to the park and just play basketball. And the same little girl who asked about oral sex, uh, she said, you know, I'm really good at basketball and I will beat you. And he said, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I know, but it still would be fun. And they just laughed and they continued to talk to each other about ways they can avoid sex. At that point, another little girl got up and she came to the front of the class and whispered to me and said, I can't do what they're doing, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm already having sex and everyone expects me to do it. So I can't say no anymore. And I said, no, that's not true. You have the right to say no. And no one has the right to tell you otherwise. And if you decide never to have sex until you get married, you have the right to do that. And she smiled so brightly and went back to the group to continue talking about abstinence. Now, here I was, a comprehensive sex educator, and I thought, uh-oh, I just I just did the wrong thing, supposedly, you know? I mean, these kids are now talking about abstinence, and I'm supposed to be teaching them about prevention um, or reducing the risk. Um, so, but they were happy, and, and it, it really struck me that no one, not their parents, not their teachers, not any nurses, and certainly not the outreach workers in their neighborhoods ever told them that they didn't have to be sexually active. Wow. And why do you think that is? I mean, it seems it seems so basic, like such a, a basic concept to empower a young person, um, you know, whether you're conservative or liberal, with just kind of that simple truth of if you don't want to have sex, you don't have to. Why, why is no one saying that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think number one, there is a huge move to normalize childhood sex. Um, so everything that you see out there is teens are going to have sex anyway. They're having sex, whether you like it or not. And so there's just this pervasive message or even like marketing strategy or branding that is convincing even conservative families that their children are going to be, you know, sexually active anyway, that they can't stop it. Um, I think the other thing, though, is in these particular communities, they were very high risk communities. And so these were the same kids whose mothers may have, there was a lot of women with children at the government housing who we knew were prostitutes, and we would literally drop off bags of condoms at their home. Um, and so part of it was that in that particular culture, a very high risk culture, it was very normal, but it's not to say, you know, that the truth is, is that once I got out of everything, I look back even today and I think, well, who is in those neighborhoods teaching something different, teaching abstinence, teaching about healthy families, nobody, um, we were literally paid by the government through fund, government funds to walk the streets every day. That was my full-time job, to literally walk the streets every single day, not in the office, but in those neighborhoods, every beauty shop, barber shop, every business, every door, every door of the government housing. Um, I was everywhere, and so were the other outreach workers. But no one is doing that same thing 
with the message of sexual risk avoidance or family formation. Uh, there is no consistent person doing that or organization doing that. So you spoke um, at the Heritage Foundation last week and in your presentation, and you referred to it uh, just briefly today, but you essentially described the sex education program of Planned Parenthood and similar organizations as a marketing tool. Uh, explain mm -hmm. what you mean by that. So what's important is that there is a, a goal that they have in mind, and that goal is to sexualize children and make them lifelong customers of Planned Parenthood. Uh, so by providing sex education, they are now encouraging children to dehumanize themselves and each other, um, making them sexually active at a young age, normalizing every sexual behavior, including, like I said, I mean, they... they they normalize everything. I don't know how much I can say on the radio, but everything that you can imagine that, I mean, it would shock you. Um, you can purchase a book called Scarletine and see all the things that are being normalized that most adults probably don't even know about. Um, and, but by doing that, those children now become dependent on getting condoms and contraceptives and getting tested and getting treated. And yes, even getting abortions. And so once that dependency occurs, and the parent um, who is purposely left out of the picture, there's no other, there's no one else who's really guiding those children. And so they become these customers and they're completely dependent on Planned Parenthood for those services. Um, and Planned Parenthood does a great job with, and I don't mean to use the, the word great as in it's a good thing, but they're very uh, well-versed in client-centered counseling skills. Um, they're very good at putting people at ease. Uh, they're very good at convincing children that this is, um, you know, they, they, they will empathize with them and say, oh yeah, your mom and dad would probably be really mad to know you're sexually active, but we know it's perfectly normal and we're here to help you and we can do whatever we need to, to make sure that you're getting the services you need and keep and stay safe. And it sounds so positive, but really what they're doing is creating a barrier between a family and their child, the guidance of a parent. Um, they're eliminating that completely and convincing these children that they're on their side, all the while they're just leading them into high-risk behaviors. So speaking of, of the parents, when you went to that school and wrote those things on the board, I mean, did, parent, did Planned Parenthood have any parental consent or any parental input for that curriculum? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And at that time we weren't, and even today, unless, unless they have permission, they're not really supposed to be in the schools either, unless you're invited. And in many cases, uh, other teachers or administrators will sneak them in. And that's exactly what they did with me uh, as we were snuck into the schools, or there may be a teacher. I know there was one teacher at this one particular uh, school who had her class in a portable building. And so it was really easy for me to just drive straight to that portable building and go into her classroom and teach children about sex. Um, and no one knew about it. So uh, there is no parent input. Absolutely not. Uh, parents, one of the things that I learned from Planned Parenthood is that uh, this is a quote from them is that parents are a barrier to service to their services. They know that as soon as a parent is involved in their child's life, or as soon as a parent knows that their child is going to a Planned Parenthood, um, they won't Planned Parenthood won't see that child again because the parent's going to keep them from there. So they do everything that they can to ensure that the parent is not part of the picture. And there's a lot of sympathetic 
teachers and administrators who will help Planned Parenthood and other comprehensive sex education organizations to do just that. Um, but as you also know, they're not, um, I mean, they're very aggressive. They mean business because it is a business to them. So they don't want to just sneak around anymore. As you're seeing in California and in many states, they're um, becoming part, they're influencing the local government, they're influencing school boards, they're creating mandates in the state education standards, um, and they're working on the state and federal level as well because their goal is to mandate this sex education, which is really an ideology, and change the sexual attitudes of our whole nation by influencing the children. And they're very effective, um, especially with their bullying tactics and with everyone wanting to be woke or politically correct, uh, or they don't want to be canceled, all these words. But we need to stand up for children because they truly are suffering and my work with the teens, even back then, is that they're waiting for leadership. They're waiting for their parents to lead. They're waiting to be given permission to abstain. And they need a parent's help to do that. So, Monica, if my child is in public school, should I assume that they're getting this kind of sex education? And how, I mean, how young is this starting? Well, they believe that children are sexual from birth um, and they're, you know, they, they use a little bit of truth uh, and then distort it completely. And just because we're born with sexual parts doesn't mean that we should be sexually active. But according to Planned Parenthood and SICUS and the future of sex education, they believe in the sexual rights of children. They do believe that children at any age, even infancy, have the right to sexual pleasure. Um, you can read that in their own mission statements. You can go to their websites and learn that. They're not hiding it anymore, and they believe it's normal. And so they're really trying to change the um, the sexual attitudes of a whole nation and across the globe that this is true. Um, and so you're going to see that they are now creating programs for parents to start convincing parents that their children are sexual beings and that they should be able to learn about their bodies and pleasure themselves uh, or with other children. It's really bizarre. Um, and then as far as public school, it's starting as young as pre-K uh, by introducing them to various lifestyles, introducing them to helping them understand that uh, same-sex couples can be intimate with one another, introducing gender identity. Um, really, they're introducing moral, um, they're, they're doing away with moral absolutes and biological absolutes. Uh, so it's not, none of it is even based on any real research or reality other than it's what they feel and it's what they want. Uh, they also use a lot of um, Alfred Kinsey's research, which is incredibly unethical uh, and should have been illegal. But yet Alfred Kinsey has influenced public health um, education and has influenced our laws in this nation as well. So working at the gay organization and collaborating with Planned Parenthood all those years, Kinsey is known as a hero. Margaret Sanger is a hero. Uh, Kinsey, they consider him a hero because he loosened the belt of people and uh, of sexual repression and gave gave people the um, spectrum of, of being from homosexual to straight and everything in between. And now they're using that same quote unquote spectrum for gender identity as well. 
Um, so I think parents need to be very concerned because even if the curriculum is not in your school, I get phone calls from parents all over the country that that progressive teachers are teaching their children this in their class, even if it's history or whatever it may be. Actually, right after the Heritage Foundation uh uh, presentation. I received an email from a mother that was listening in and she asked, what do I do? My daughter's teacher told her that having sex at this age is not a big deal and she can totally do it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so now the daughter has come home and told her mother, you know, you're worrying about nothing. My teacher said, it's okay to have sex. Wow. So w- my question is why, like what, what is their motivating factor to teach children this? Uh, A big piece of this, um, which for some people, it's something I think hard for them to understand is that there is a huge uh, movement through socialism that really wants to do away with the nuclear family. They want to do away with um, anything that is of uh, whether it's private property or private family. And so they believe that children do not necessarily belong to parents, but that they can educate the children in the way that they want them to go. And sex education is a big piece of that because when you dehuman, when you teach children to dehumanize themselves, to take intimacy and family and marriage out of sex, uh, even to the point of killing your own children through abortion, you are essentially killing the family. You're destroying the family. Um, and all of the tactics that they're using, um, you, you can read any curriculum. Not only is it going to be graphic, but they will not ever guide a child to talk to their own parent, ever. You won't hear a word about the parent. A, a parent is completely eliminated from this education. Uh, they want the children dependent on the government or on public health. Uh, whatever it may be, but they do not want the children to be depending on the parent anymore. Um, and so all of this really is to break down the family. And um, and they're essentially, we're watching it happen. Uh, like I said, I receive a lot of phone calls from mothers who are admitting that their children no longer respect them, uh, that they don't think mom and dad, I mean, they basically have been given words in school And they go home and they tell their parents, you're just old fashioned, or you are worshiping a God of hate, or um, you're very conservative. Uh, You don't understand the culture. And these kids are learning all this at school. Monica, I just so appreciate your perspective because you, you stood on, on both sides really of this aisle, you've, you've seen the inside, you understand how this works, and, and you became a, a sexual risk avoidance specialist, and you started uh, an organization called It Takes a Family, really to shine a light on the truth about sexual education and the importance of parents actually being involved in that education. Can you just explain a little bit about that transition for you of then becoming a, a sexual risk avoidance specialist, uh, and a little bit about your organization as well? Right. Well, I I created It Takes a Family because of that quote from Planned Parenthood, that parents are a barrier to service. And I realized that that was the key. Parents are the key. They are the number one obstacle between this agenda and children. And, chil- and you know, and parents are in the best position to lead their children because children naturally love their parents. Children want 
to hear from their parents. Um, at some point, and when I created It Takes a Family, you know, my, my whole goal is to encourage and educate and equip parents about the culture and about sex so that they can have these conversations with their children at home, at their own pace and with their values. And uh, at some point I asked my son, he was 17 at that time. I said, you know, I want to write this book for parents. What do you think, you know, so they can talk to their children about sex? What, what do you recommend? Because he and I had a really good relationship very open, talked about everything. And he said, mom, please don't create a curriculum with videos. <laughs> I said, why not? He said, because parents are just going to make, you know, make us watch videos and no, no kid really wants to watch a video with their parents. And I said, well, what do you recommend? He said, well, teach them to do what you did with me. And I said, well, what did I do with you? He said, you, you know, you, you cared for me. You showed me you let me know what your expectations are. You spoke to me from your heart. And that's what kids really want. They want to hear from their parents. They want to hear their their parents' heart for them and what their expectations are and what what they hope for them. And that's what we want. We want a relationship. And that really, you know, one, it warmed my heart, but that is the key. The key is, is that when parents and children have confidence when, when a child knows that their parents going to listen to them, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the story, but that they have value in the eyes of their parents, that child will always come to the parent. And that's one of the things that I always shared with my son, because having the experience that I had watching these children who were afraid to speak to their parents and instead were relying on a different adult who was giving them very bad information I realized it was important for my son to know that I was his greatest advocate and that I would always tell him the truth. And so I raised him that way. Um, if he wanted to talk about a pencil that was a, you know, that he got as a prize in elementary school. And if he wanted to talk about it for 15 minutes, I listened because I knew that when, if I could establish great communication with him, if I could establish a consistent, um, habit that he knew mom always listens to me, then I knew that when he became a teenager, he would have that confidence with me even then. And so that's really what it takes a family is about is not only do I want to educate parents on the realities of what is happening in the culture, uh, they need to know the data on STDs, they need to know all those things. But most of all, they need to know how to ha how to have and establish a confident and trustworthy relationship with their children so that they can have those conversations with them. Monica, that is such good advice. And yeah, I like choked up a little bit as you were telling that story. So just thank you so much for, for what you're doing and for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now stay tuned because in just a moment, we will be talking with our colleague and Daily Signal congressional reporter, Rachel Del Judas, about her experience writing on Air Force Two with Vice President Mike Pence. But first, I don't know about you all, but YouTube is one of my guilty pleasures for sure. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics. So, you know, I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There's so much binge-worthy content from policy and news explainers to documentaries. So if you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues that you care about the most.
We are so excited to welcome our friend and colleague, Rachel Del Judas, to the show. Rachel, welcome back. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. It's always a lot of fun to be with you guys. So, Rachel, last week you traveled to Iowa with the vice president, Mike Pence, for three different events, including the Heritage and Heritage Action launch of uh, the Fight for America campaign. This was your very first time traveling on Air Force Two. I have to admit, I'm a little jealous. What an awesome experience. So tell us, what was it like? I mean, where where were you sitting? How close were you to the vice president? Give us kind of the full picture of what that was like riding on Air Force Two. Sure. Well, I have to say, even for me, looking back at it, this was a few days ago, and it's, it's still like, wow, did this even happen? I arrived before the vice president did, and what they had us do, and I'm sure it's probably pretty standard procedure, you arrive ahead of the vice president and a lot of his team, and so the press arrives, and I was sitting more towards the back um, of the aircraft along with Secret Service and some of his staff, and then a few reporters. There was only, honestly, I think there were three other reporters and then two or three other camera men that came along with their different staff. So it was a small crowd of reporters, again, sitting towards the back of the plane. And I think what was just surreal, we got to Andrews Air Force Base and we all uh, you know, went up to uh, Air Force Two to find our seats. All the seats are assigned. So they have little name cards for guests that are on the plane and it says Air Force Two welcomes. And then they have your name on that card and just sitting down and seeing my name there, I was like, this is just how this is even happening. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you wait, you sit down and then uh, the vice president comes and it's, it's practice, or at least it was this uh, trip where uh, a lot of the reporters, his staff and everyone comes off the plane and stands uh, outside to greet the vice president to watch him walk up his entrance um, into Air Force Two and seeing his motorcade pull up and him get out and uh, salute the law enforcement that were there to greet him and then walk up the plane and then only be, I don't know, a couple, a couple feet from him. I mean, half of a, if you think of like an airplane uh, you know, aisle, maybe about a, you know, an aisle and a half from those, you know, lengths, just, is just mind-blowing. So I'm still processing it, as you can tell. <laughs> so uh, I think our listeners want to know, really, the most important part about being on the plane with the vice president, what sort of snacks did they serve? <laughs> so yes, they fed us well. Um, there was plenty of drinks. They were uh, walking around a lot, checking in with us, seeing if we wanted anything to drink. Um, personally, I didn't have many snacks, but they did feed us well. So for lunch, we had enchiladas and this was the highlight of the day for me. One of the highlights was ice cream sandwiches. So I was like, I'm eating this, you know, these enchiladas and they, you know, obviously so, uh, you know, kind and hospitable and serving us. And then they come through with dessert. And I was kind of curious. I'm like, oh, you know, what could they be feeding us for dessert? I wasn't even expecting it. And then they have vanilla and chocolate ice cream sandwiches. So that was uh, very um, exciting and just really cool to be eating an ice cream sandwich on Air Force Two. Um, and then for dinner, they fed us steak and green beans and mashed potatoes and strawberry cheesecake. So it was definitely not your run-of-the-mill airplane food uh, at all. Wow. I'm such a sucker for ice cream sandwiches. Like, it's such a simple dessert, but that somehow it just, like, we hit the spot. Yeah. yeah. Like apple pie almost. It's classic. Best dessert ever. Yes. So as far as, like, like what you all were allowed to do on the plane did were you allowed to use laptops was security like crazy tight could you not pull out any electronics yeah so they were actually they worked with us a lot the one thing that uh, was different from some flights there was no wi-fi on the plane 
Um, so you were limited to what you were able to do um, in that regard. But, you know, we were allowed to use our laptops. We were allowed to use our phones. Um, they had two restrooms that um, staff and media were able to use. So obviously free to use those. Um, and then, you know, it was, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with Air Force too, but there's, when you, when you're riding on a plane, really anywhere on commercial flights, there's all of these, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And it was very, just a very calm, like very welcoming. There was not a lot of like, you can't do this, you can't do that. It was just, everyone was very respectful. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, hospitality in that, um, they wanted us to be comfortable, uh, to do what we were able to do. It was very interesting to see how, um, well and how kind, um, the vice president's staff were to media. I think sometimes at least when all of us are watching mainstream outlets, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, consternation that, you know, the press can have towards, um, the administration or different lawmakers in general. But, uh, I just noticed it was very, um, just eye-opening to me to see how kind and welcoming um, the vice president's staff was to media. And I just highlight that because uh, watching a lot of mainstream channels, that's something that you would never hear talked about. But as an eyewitness to it, it was just something that um, really made an impact on me. So where were you going and, and what event did you cover? So at the first event of the day, uh, the Farmers and Ranchers for Trump event, I did speak to the seventh generation farmer and he was talking about how Trump really has tried to educate himself on the needs of farmers and he said that when Trump first took office in 2016 he wasn't really sure how you know as he put it this New Yorker is going to get it and he said that he really considers President Trump to be a great president and he supports him because Trump has educated himself on rural issues, on issues that matters to farmers. And so he was saying that he's, that's why he uh, supports President Trump and, you know, is pleased with how Trump has operated in the past four years. So that was the first event of the day. And then the second event, Virginia, as you mentioned, was the Heritage Action Town Hall with law enforcement. And basically, I believe, so so at the beginning of the event, uh, the Heritage Town Hall, Chad Wolf, who is the Department of Homeland Security Acting Secretary, he delivered some remarks, and then Vice President Pence took the stage and gave a few opening remarks. But then as town halls go, it was mostly a lot of just question and answers from people in the audience. I know a mom with a couple kids asked a question basically about civil society and given all the different uh, rioting and events of the past months following the death of George Floyd, basically where to go from there as a country. And then there were different officers in law enforcement talking about trouble that they see, areas for opportunity, again, sort of where to move on and a similar theme, the mom who asked a question. So it was a more of an intimate event than the farmers and ranchers event for Trump. That was the first event of the day and just a lot of people gathered listening to the vice president and then able to ask questions. And then the final event of the day was closed to press. So I don't know what went on in there, but it was the Iowa GOP state dinner. And while everyone was at that event, we just, the press sat in a holding room with some staffers and we uh, were just finishing up work for the day. I was finishing my story, like some of the other reporters. And then uh, the vice president's team, some of his staffers came in with some hors d'oeuvres for us just to keep us held over because it was a long day. And when you're running all day, 
you do get hungry and there's really no time to eat. So after that, uh, we headed in a motorcade that we'd been using the whole day to travel back to the airport and flew back to Washington, D.C. So did you have maybe one specific highlight or just thing that really stood out to you apart from the ice cream sandwiches? (laughs) Well, apart from the ice cream sandwiches, I think it was just more looking at the totality of the day and what was going on, whether it was in the early morning when we got to Air Force Two at Andrews Air Force Base and watched the president walk up those steps and enter into the plane or again, traveling with the motorcade all day and seeing the vice president talk um, in different venues with different people, just realizing that, you know, this is something that's been happening for years and years and years, regardless of party, um, you know, presidents and vice presidents, you know, are called to serve the people that they represent. And seeing that happen before my eyes was just something that definitely took my breath away. I definitely had to pinch myself a few times um, and just, I think, appreciate this country, you know, with its faults and flaws, with the, um, you know, different situations we find ourselves in, like we still are in uh, a beautiful country, one that is the envy of the world. And it's the people uh, that really make this country what it is. So also getting to speak with the people of Iowa and hear their stories and um, hear where they're coming from and why um, they're excited and why they see hope for the future. Um, That was also a really beautiful thing. So just being part of the experience as a whole um, just was just, there's a lot of wonder and awe happening. Just, wow, like this is, this is my country. This is, um, you know, the leader of the vice president, the leader, one of the leaders of the free world that I'm traveling with. And that was just, I'm just still in awe, as you can tell. So it was pretty incredible. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you so much for sharing that experience with us. But I did want to pivot and talk about something a little different. And another really high profile person you traveled with must have been such an honor. Uh, and that was me. <laughs> It was, yes, back in February, back in before February. COVID, before when COVID. life was more normal. <laughs> so I, I know. want to ask you first, uh, we're, we're going to get into this documentary uh, that, that we did, that, that you did, but I want to talk about the vehicle that we took down to this documentary shoot. Can you just compare that to Air Force Two for me? <laughs> yeah, there were definitely, Lauren, some stark differences to be had. I will say it was a lot more cramped. Uh, We did not have restrooms in our little soccer mom van that we had on Air Force Two. There's no walkway into our minivan with red carpet like there was on Air Force Two. We didn't have, obviously, restrooms. There were no ice cream sandwiches served to us. So uh, definitely some big differences there. Like, let's talk just real quick playlist. Did Mike Pence have a dope playlist? (laughs) We did not have a dope playlist. We actually were watching um, news the whole time. So, I mean, appropriate for the scenario. But I will say, Lauren, that we did not have the dope playlist that we listened to on the way up to Williamsburg in our little soccer mom uh, minivan on Air Force Two. We were listening to news, watching the news the whole time. So we did not have that at our avail, which was definitely a stark (laughs) difference there. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, that, you know, both have their pros and cons. For sure. (laughs) But let's really get into the meat of it. Uh, This is such a powerful story, Rachel. Can you let us know a little bit about who we went and did a documentary on and why the story is so important? 
Yes, so um, in February, me and you and several other colleagues here at the Daily Signal went out to Williamsburg, Virginia uh, to talk to Peter Vlaming, and he's a French teacher uh, who taught at West Point High School in uh, West Point, Virginia for seven years, um, and near, I believe it was the end of the 2018 uh, school year, one of his students, who was a 14-year-old girl, um, gave Mr. Vlaming a handwritten letter saying that she was transgender and she had adopted a masculine name and wanted to use it in French class. Um, and so, obviously, Mr. Vlaming, uh, he sat down, he was telling us his story, and he had said that he uh, wanted to accommodate this girl as much as he was able to uh, at the beginning of the 2018 school year, so in the fall, um, he had offered the opportunity to his whole class to choose a new French name. So this uh, student also was able to uh, choose a new name and he used that uh, faithfully um, in class with her and in working with her. Um, so a couple months go by, uh, it's now mid-October, end of October uh, 2018, uh, the student met with Mr. Vlaming and told him that she had heard that he referred to her as a girl outside of class. And they had a discussion. Mr. Vlaming told the student that he appreciated her, was glad that he had her in French class, and that uh, he wasn't really supposed to say this, but that she was one of his favorite students, and he really appreciated her term and wit. And in this conversation, told the student that uh, the student adopting this new identity was a big transition for him and he asked for her to extend a little bit of grace and mr fleming said that they both left that meeting satisfied um and the next day he went to speak with his assistant principal at the school and told the assistant principal uh what happened and basically that he respected the student's right um for her to believe what she believed about, you know, her gender, that she was transgender. He believed that her family had a right to believe whatever they wanted to leave, believe about her transition, but that he could not in good conscience refer to a girl as a boy. Um, and so he met with um, people at the school on October 31st, 2018, which was Halloween. He was given an official reprimand that basically said that he was not using the appropriate pronouns and that this was the first step in a series of steps that would lead to his termination. So later that day on Halloween, this is where the whole story kind of culminates. Um, they had an activity in Mr. Vlaming's class, his students, where Mr. Vlaming had these virtual reality headsets and the students uh, were wearing them seeing basically a virtual tour of the catacombs of Paris that were ravaged by the Black Death. And so he had found this website where students could put on these virtual reality goggles and watch this tour of these catacombs of Paris. Um, so he divided the students into pairs. One wore the virtual reality headset and the other one uh, guided the student around so that they wouldn't walk into something. Well, during this exercise, uh, Mr. Vlaming was watching all of his students, making sure everyone was, you know, being safe and using these um, uh, virtual reality goggles appropriately. And he noticed that the transgender student was about ready to walk into a wall and her partner, her, um, you know, fellow student that was supposed to be guiding her around wasn't paying any attention. So as a reflex, he shouted, don't let her hit the wall. 
And he said at that very moment, he actually put his hand over his mouth because he was like, shoot, I've been trying to avoid using female pronouns, but eventually he said it was bound to happen. Um, and that moment was basically the moment that cost him his career as a French teacher at West Point High School. Wow, Rachel, this is such a powerful documentary. Uh, it came out on Tuesday. It's excellent. From the moment I started watching it, I was completely pulled in. Tell me a little bit about what you hope viewers walk away with. What What is the message that you want them to take from this story? Well, I really want them to um, hear and see Peter's story as well as um, the different students that we talked to that are featured in the documentary, as well as some of uh, Mr. Vlaming's colleagues. And I say that because I think a lot of times uh, when something like this happens, there's one narrative and it's, you know, the narrative of the person that, you know, maybe they mainstream media feels like, you know, was committed an injustice against them in this case, it being the transgender student. Um, but I want them to basically hear and see Mr. Vlaming's story and um, his heart behind this. I think, you know, a lot of times when people say that, you know, in good conscience, they can't do something, they're painted in an unfair and uncharacteristically wrong light. And I, I want people to really see his story for what it is. We also did reach out to uh, West Point High School. We wanted to either do an interview with them uh, or even, you know, at least get a statement from them. And they basically said that they deny any liability to Mr. Vlaming and that they're going to vigorously defend any claims against uh, that they do have liability towards him. So I want people to see the story for what it is. I want people to just kind of like go to the source for themselves and really experience his story here where he's coming from um, and really just draw their own conclusions. Rachel, I know as someone who edits documentaries frequently that, you know, it, it's a labor of love and, and to get something out, you know, it just, it means so much. Um, but part of the process, you have to cut so much footage. I know the interview you did with him was, you know, closer to an hour long. And then we did, you know, many interviews with students and, and another administrator. So can you let us know a couple tidbits that you would have loved to include in the documentary, but there just wasn't any time? Sure. Well, I know that um, there was another colleague of Mr. Vlaming's that we did interview for a while, and he um, had a lot of great things to say, but again, it came down to the issue of time, and we weren't able to um, include some of what we had to say. I know that um, there were obviously two, a couple of things that Jessica Teagle and Wyatt Pedersen had talked about in their interviews with us, and like you had mentioned, Lauren, um, we weren't able to use those. It's really... Um, it's kind of, it's definitely an art when you sit down. So after when you're, you know, working on a documentary like this, you, I did these interviews and then you have to sit down and write a script. And there's just so much that I had in the first edit of the script that I'd written. And you just have to whittle it down into something that is digestible for people when they're watching it. So they get all of the facts of the story, but then there's also um, the time element involved too. So where it's, you know, short enough that people will be able to watch it and that they can digest that. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, I mean, there's his other friend that was um, at the school with him. We weren't able to unfortunately include that. And then there were also other things that Caleb Dalton, um, who is representing Mr. Vlaming, we interviewed him, his story and his uh, thoughts on the case are included, but there's 
things that everyone said that I wish we could have uh, had time for, but you just want to make, I guess, the most important elements of the story available. And that's what we tried to do. But again, like you said, Lauren, there is things that, you know, we would want to be there that um, just didn't make the cut. But uh, I hope that uh, the nuts and bolts and the facts of what was included that, you know, it stands on its own. And I'm going to take moderator privilege here. And when you do an interview with someone and Rachel did such a great job with this interview, you know, like you get a lot of information and, and you watch these YouTube videos and, you know, you, you think like, oh yeah, he's a nice guy. This is a nice story. But when you spend a weekend with somebody and, and I can say about Mr. Flaming, you know, when we finished shooting, we packed all our stuff up. He waited with us and then he wanted to pray over us before we left. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Lauren. I actually had emailed, so uh, Mr. Vlaming sent me an email this morning and has said thank you um, for sharing his story. And then I'd emailed him back. And something that like I remembered um, was, and, like you mentioned, Lauren, before we left, he prayed for us and you know prayed for our work and the telling of the story and the people that would hear it. Um, and that was just a really beautiful experience. I've honestly, in my four years uh, since graduating and working in journalism, that's never happened to me before. So it was definitely something really beautiful and really uh, showed his character that he is a man of faith. And it wasn't about necessarily trying to you know, at least in all my conversations with Mr. Vlaming, he's not trying to skew a message or a conversation anyway. He just wants um, the facts of the, the story to be told and also people to be able to avail themselves to those facts, to hear them and see them, to draw their own conclusions. And just for people to um, be in a place where they're able to you know, hear them and see them in their truest light. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. That was something that's never happened to me before and really, really impacted me. Rachel, thank you so much for for joining us. It's just a, a privilege to hear not only about Air Force Two, but uh, also about this incredible documentary. And for all of our listeners, you can find the documentary on the Daily Signal's YouTube page. We also are pushing it out all over our social media platforms. You can find it there as well, but we hope you check it out and we'll be sure uh, to link it in today's show notes as well. Rachel, thanks so much. Lauren and Virginia, thank you so much for having me. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Before we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week, we want to give you all a quick update on the battle over transgender athletes participating in women's sports. As we have discussed on this show, Idaho is the only state to pass specific legislation banning biological men who identify as transgender from participating in women's sports. Earlier this year, Idaho Governor Brad Little signed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act to protect female athletes from losing not only sports competitions, but also opportunities for things like scholarships. Well, it unfortunately didn't take long before the law was challenged in court with a lawsuit from a transgender individual and the ACLU. 
On Monday, federal judge David Nye issued an injunction blocking the legislation and saying that Idaho did not provide enough evidence to support the law's existence. But the lawsuit and court battle is far from over. Judge Nye wrote in his order that, quote, plaintiffs are likely to succeed in establishing the act is unconstitutional. I don't know the likelihood of this case rising to the level of the Supreme Court, but we will certainly keep you all updated as we continue to follow this lawsuit in Idaho and the battle for women's sports across America. Now stay tuned for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Susan B. Anthony. Tuesday marked the 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote through the passage of the 19th Amendment. Heritage Foundation President Casey James was at the White House with the President of the United States and other members of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. And at that event, the President made a great announcement. Take a listen. I wanted to just add something because this was brought up a week ago. And I was so surprised that it was never done before, because later today, I will be signing a full and complete pardon for Susan B. Anthony. She was never pardoned. Did you know that? She was never pardoned. What took so long? And you know that she got a pardon for a lot of other women, and she didn't put her name on the list. So she was never pardoned. And we're uh, for voting. That's right. That's right. She was guilty for voting. And uh, we are going to be signing a full and complete pardon. And I think that's really fantastic, right? She deserves it. This week's Twitter poll is, in this coronavirus world we live in, do you feel comfortable flying on an airplane again? Yes, no, or it depends on the airline. I mean, you know, if the airline is Air Force Two, like Rachel, <laughs> I would feel very comfortable. <laughs> you know, I've flown on Southwest a couple times uh, in the past month, a couple months, and I, I was always very comfortable. Everybody wore their masks. There was nobody in the middle seat. Uh, you actually only boarded in groups of 10. So honestly, it was even better than flying pre-COVID to me. All right. Well, if I fly anywhere, I will keep Southwest in mind. Always, always a good option. Uh, I guess shameless plug, free marketing for Southwest. Uh, but the poll is up on the Daily Signal Twitter page, and Lauren and I will be sure to share it on our pages. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.